from St. Peter's second epistle. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I just got back from sabbatical a week ago. I was off for June and July. I'll be honest with you that resting for that long was not easy for me. Uh, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of thinking. I did a lot of nothing, which is not easy for me either. Um, But one of the things I was considering, lots of stuff, but one thing I was really in my mind, and it pretty much always is, is how do we as a parish, as a congregation, bring other people to Jesus? And providentially, uh, I was on Facebook or Twitter, I don't remember which one, but there was an article which came up, which then said, what are the things that cause people to go to church? What are the things that, that lead people in to the life of a parish? You want to guess what they were? I'll give it to you. Well, a couple things that came to my mind immediately. Uh, laser shows and programming? No. Children's ministry? Nada. An invitation by the pastor? That's a big no. And I'll tell you why. Because if some, and this has happened to me, if I invite someone to come to church, they think I'm trying to make a pitch, right? And quite frankly, so would I if I was in their shoes. <laughs> the biggest predictor, here's the, here's, the, here's the whopper. The biggest predictor by far, 80% of a person going to church, the biggest predictor is an invitation by you. You want to know how churches grow? You invite them. I mean, the the pastor invitation, music, children's ministries, those were all single-digit things. Eighty-something percent, 82 percent of people that go, go because somebody invited them to go. And it actually makes a lot of sense, if you think about it logically, because the people that you talk to, they trust you. They know you. They know that you're not trying to pitch them something. In fact, uh, I'm super excited. Bishop Holcomb, our new bishop, is hosting a speaker series in August, a new book that's come out about the de-churched, people that have, were Christians and have fallen away and not come back. COVID's a lot of it, but we're going to be looking at this book as a parish, and I'm going to be studying it with my vestry and hopefully running a study on it with you. To how can we reach the de-churched? And the key, and it's simple, is preach the word faithfully, be a loving parish, and be people of invitation to others. And one thing which occurred to me this past week, or over a sabbatical rather, you know, I got to thinking about this. I'm like, you know, if you're like me, we, if we come across a, a good deal, we want to tell everybody, right? So say, for example, you know, tenderloin is half price. You get a BOGO at Fresh Market, you're going to tell all your friends. You find a really good wine deal, right? You're going to tell all your friends, this is a great red I picked up. You know what I'm saying, right? But for some reason, I don't, know, I don't really know why this is, for some reason, the most important thing that, we, that you have and that I have is our relationship with Jesus. And yet, for some reason, we're nowhere near as excited to share that as we are for a BOGO at Publix, right? Why is that? We're going to look at that today. Why would we invite someone to church in the first place? Well, from the story of the, tra- the transfiguration today, we're going to look at this in three points, Okay. First one is the conviction of a converted heart. What causes someone to invite another person? You're convicted. 
Your heart is convicted. A second reason why you invite other people is you're concerned for them. And the third reason you invite people is you've got the guts to do it. A conviction of a converted heart, a concern for other people, and the courage to do it. So, you ready? The Feast of the Transfiguration is today, and I will be perfectly honest with you, the Transfiguration does not strike me as a terribly evangelical topic, right? I seriously doubt that Joel Olstein ever preached on the Transfiguration. I couldn't tell you if he did or not because I've not really listened to anything he's preached, to be perfectly honest with you. But here's the thing. Luke tells us, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Peter... James and John go up a mountain with Jesus to pray. That's a really interesting detail because he doesn't invite everybody. I mean, if I was was God and I wanted everybody to know who I was, I'm going to go on Twitter and I'm going to do the transfiguration on a huge, huge stage, right? That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't invite the crowds, hoi polloi, right? That's the Greek term doesn't invite the crowds, doesn't invite the other disciples. He doesn't even invite the apostles, the twelve. He only invites three, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. And the reason he only invites these three is because what he's about to have, what's about to happen is personal. It's relational. Let Let me ask you this. If I said to you that God wanted a personal relationship with you, what would you think? I'll be, per- I'll be blunt with you, to be brutally honest. When I was in my mid-20s and I was still working in the corporate world and making money and all that rig- rigmarole, if someone said to me that God wanted a personal relationship with me, I would have cared less. Sounded weird, a personal relationship with God. Yeah, okay, whatever, right? Sounds weird, and it does sound weird, but so does falling in love, right? <laughs> if you think about it, if you ever, you know, when you're a little kid and you talk about your mom and dad tell you you're going meet to a, meet a man or meet a woman and you're going to get married and want to spend all your money and all your time on them rather than on you, you're like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Until you do it. And it's kind of like a personal relationship with Jesus. It sounds stupid, and it sounds phony, and it sounds, why bother, until you do it. Or, if you've seen somebody has, and how it changes them. And if you look at human history, most gods, right, pagan gods, fake stuff, they look at human beings as one of three things. Sexual objects, food, or kind of mild entertainment, right? Let's see what they do now, right? But the God of the Bible is radically different. Radically different. It's an entirely different picture of God. That we have a God who really does care, really does care about the carbon unit sitting in your seat. Screw tape. Screw tape letters, one of my favorite books. Screw tape, the demon in the book, famously says that God, he really loves those hairless bipeds. <laughs> and here's an example. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and he is transfigured before their very eyes. That Greek word for transfigured is the word metamorpho, which is like a metamorphosis, right? Like a caterpillar into a butterfly kind of thing. And what it actually shows you is not, that, not a change in substance, but a change in form, right? So what we see, what Jesus is actually doing with Peter, James, and John is showing them who he is inside, his real self, his true nature, his inner, his inner being, if you will. 
he is showing them who he really is. You know, uh, we don't just tell our story to anybody, do we? You try to think through why Jesus would do it this way, and why doesn't he just tell everybody all at once? Well, think about it. We don't, we don't tell our story to anyone, just anyone, do we? I mean, imagine you go to Starbucks, right? I was at Starbucks last week, and I order an iced Americana with two cream, one sugar. Great stuff, by the way. And that, the guy that on the mic says, anything else? Would that, be any, would that be all, sir? And I said, no, actually, I want to ask you a question. He says, what? And I said, you know, I got in a fight with my wife last week. She left me. Uh, I'm, I've, I'm broke. What do you think I should do? <laughs> right? Awkward, right? We don't share personal stuff. My wife, we didn't really have a fight. That's an example. But the point is, we don't share personal stuff with everyone. We share the important, the gut stuff, the core stuff, the, in, the really important part, the, the inner circle of you. You share that with only a few. You do it too. Think of, all the, think, of the, think of the things in your life that you share with others. You don't share them with everybody. You don't share your personal stuff with strangers, the checker at Publix. You reserve your personal stuff for your inner circle. You reserve your stuff for your own, Peter, James, and John, or whatever their names are. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's inviting them into a personal, intimate, one-on-one relationship with him. So Jesus is transfigured, you see. He's changed. His appearance um, blows him away. Jesus is transfigured, but here's the irony. Here's the strange part. So So is Peter. If you've ever seen one of the icons of the Transfiguration, Father Jordan and I were talking about this last week, the, the Eastern Orthodox icons of the Transfiguration. So Jesus in the middle, right? He's got rays coming out of him. And Peter and John are, are like this. Oh, like they're cowering in the, from the glory of God. And, and they know what they're seeing is something so overwhelming, they can't take it. They're afraid. And this is why Peter, who always speaks first and then thinks later, Peter says, let's get some tents to cover this up, right? And this is my point. That changed, that chant transfigured Peter. This is my first point about inviting people to church. The conviction of a converted heart. You know, here's the really cool thing. We read the story about the transfiguration in Luke's gospel, and many, many, many years later, 20 years later or so, Peter is now facing his own death at the hand of the Romans. Crucified, if you don't know this, upside down. Right? The Romans were very good at this sort of thing. And Peter now writes this epistle to the church, 2 Peter, and he writes the following. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we were with him on that holy mountain. <coughs> See, what transfigured Peter wasn't argument, wasn't logic, wasn't scripture. It was a personal encounter with Jesus. An eyewitness account. And it changed him. It transfigured him. And it will change you. Have you ever had a personal encounter with Jesus? One-on-one. An encounter that changed you. Maybe you had a really serious health problem, right? Or someone you love did. And it totally reset all of your priorities. All the things that used to matter to you, you're like, wow, I was just chasing a rabbit trail there. That was a bad idea. 
Maybe you lost your house. Maybe you're broke. Maybe you're dealing with a child who's sick or dying or almost does. Maybe you, do you, but you feel God even in the midst of that suffering, don't you? Think back about the time when you were, when you were struggling with fill in the blank. We've all got something. And at that time, you can put, put yourself back in that time. You think now and you think, I'm done. I'm gonna, this is going to break me. This is it. Well, here you are. A personal encounter with Jesus changes people. It convicts people. And it leads, second point, to a concern for others. See, this is an interesting thing. Most religions, particularly Eastern religions, right? Buddhism and uh, so forth. They're focused almost entirely on the inner life of the person experiencing it, right? Buddhism, for example. Pick on that for a second. Buddhism focuses on transcending the suffering of this world, right? That suffering is an illusion. It's not really there. You have to transcend it. I had a friend of mine, and I can't remember if it was graduate school or college, we were talking about this once. He said, yeah, that's why you'll never see a Buddhist hospital. You never will. You know why? Why would you make a hospital to serve suffering people? It's not real. But see, Christianity is radically different. Personal conversion isn't just about us. It's not about our own internal life, but about others. I'll give you another example. Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 15, says this. Peter writes this. Always be prepared. Always be ready to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. Always be ready to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, your faith has to be lived outwardly. Jesus says we are salt and we are light. If you've had an encounter with the Lord, it should change you. It should flow out of you. I find it fascinating that Peter actually takes his own advice. Facing his own execution, he doesn't lash out. He doesn't blame God. Peter offers a testimony for the hope that is in him. We saw him on that holy mountain. We were witnesses of his majesty. I saw him, and I know with 100% certainty that he is God. Verse 13, I think it is right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter uses his experience at the transfiguration to encourage, remind, and strengthen other Christians. Even though, even though he's about to get whacked for it. Let me ask you this. <coughs> Excuse me. When was the last time that you ministered to someone based on your own experience? A conversation with a friend or a child or a colleague? Where was the last time an opportunity presented itself for you to offer your own story, your own testimony in love about how the Lord has changed you and is changing you? To quote Peter, when is the last time that you offered someone a testimony about the hope that is in you? Just this past week, I was at the barber getting my hair cut by a guy not named Bill. <laughs> okay. Bill knows I'm a priest. He's a very thoughtful guy. I like him very much. And uh, he, he was raised a Christian, sort of nominally, but 
he's decided to, uh, to renounce his Christianity and convert to Judaism. And I kind of knew he was playing with this a little bit, but he said to me last week he had decided to pull the trigger. And I said, well, I said, well, Bill, why would you do that? He says, yeah, you know, the Gospels are not authentic. They're all made up. They're not real. Jesus never said the things that Scripture claims. He basically said, he said flat out, Christianity is made up. I said, well, I said, how do you know that? No answer, of course. He didn't have an answer. And I said, Bill, look, it all comes down to the person of Jesus. I mean, after all, he claims to be God. That's what got him killed in the first place. He rose from the dead, and he talked to people, and he ate with people, and, he, and they saw him alive. And not only they saw him alive, they saw him alive and claimed that he was alive, and they were willing to die for that claim rather than recant it. Peter is a great example of that. I said, people won't die for something they know isn't true. Men and women will not die for a lie. I said, how do you explain that? How do you explain it? Of course, he couldn't. And I said, but you know what, Bill? The real proof that Jesus changes lives is that he's changed mine. I was a selfish, type A, short-tempered, impatient, typical 25-year-old overachiever. And Jesus, thanks be to God, he changed me. And he'll change you too. I said, Bill, he'll change you too if you ask him. You'll see. And then I gave him 50 bucks for a $20 haircut. And I said, he's also made me generous. <laughs> the point, but the point is, you see, Bill listened to me. He trusts me to a degree, anyhow. I have no idea if that, com that conversation moved the needle at all for him. I have no idea if what I said influenced his decision. I don't know if he's, even gonna, if he's still going to become a Jew or not. I don't care. It's not my problem. It's not yours either. Conversion of the human heart is God's job. He can handle it. But you and I, as his people, have got to be willing to share how God has changed us. So we see the conviction of a converted heart when we're changed. We see a concern for others and bringing them to the Lord. And then finally, we see the courage to stand up. You know, again, Peter knows the clock is ticking. He's about to be executed, and he doesn't back down. There's an old quote attributed to Edmund Burke. It says, the only thing necessary for, triumph, for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Put another way, friends, cowardice is not an option. We have so many issues, so many issues in our culture right now. Child sex trafficking, right? The war in Ukraine. Children being given puberty blockers without their parents' consent or knowledge. Drag queen story hour. The list goes on, man. The list goes on. We shake our heads. We point fingers. We get angry. You know, the answer, the solution is actually quite simple. All we really need to do, all we are required to do, is to have the courage to tell the truth and do what is right. I'm going to challenge you this morning, today, right now, to make a decision to share your faith with someone who desperately needs to hear it. Be willing to tell your story. Be willing to offer how God has and is changing you. Don't worry about their conversion. Don't worry about how they respond to you. Just have the courage to do your part. Tell your story and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Friends, our culture, our culture literally hangs in the balance. 
heaven and hell, literally, hang in the balance. How has Jesus transfigured you, and are you willing to share it with others? Shall we pray? Father, today we remember Jesus transfigured on the mountain as evidence and proof of who he is, but also as an invitation into a relationship with him. Help us to know our story, how Jesus has changed us, and give us the courage to speak it. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.